Welcome to Power, Strength and Vulnerability, the mental health podcast. It's time to make mental health a normal conversation with your host, Shane Kelton. Welcome to another podcast, Power, Strength and Vulnerability. I'm your host, Shane Kelton. And today I have, every time I want to say special guest, but you're all you're all just people I know, so you're probably not that special. But uh, bloke I grew up with, you went to the same school as me the year above. Um, I think we were friends at some points, and then at some points we probably like hated each other just because that's what you do at high school. Um, and reconnected a couple of months ago. Um, I was definitely some similar values and beliefs, and uh, I'd like everyone to clap in your own living rooms. Um, Craig Foxen, welcome. Thanks, Shane. Good to good to catch up. <laughs> good to catch up. He's gone quiet. We've we've just been talking for about twenty minutes prior to jumping <laughs> on. So, um, Usually how are you today? Day. How's how's your how's your COVID day going? Um, pretty pretty low key. Hey, the sun's out, so I went out for a walk, and you know, just making sure I'm taking care of myself. But yeah, pretty uneventful, mate. Pretty uneventful. Well, that's well, that's that's, that's a good way to be. Sometimes, yeah. um, sometimes it's good to be eventful. Now. Um, we could go many which ways with this podcast. Um, I think you're someone who we could probably run a series of podcasts on. That would be probably fair to say. Um, I'm glad you. I'm glad you laughed at that and didn't take offence to that. Um, yeah. Um, but what what brings you here today? What what why do you want to get your why do you want to get your voice out there? Um, I think the major thing that's brought me here today is I've really struggled with my mental health for probably 18, 19 years now, and it's been a lot of failings on my own behalf and spent a lot of my life searching for answers and trying to blame others until recently COVID allowed me the time and flexibility to reflect on my own journey and what I could do better. And then obviously we connected as part of that and I made some radical life changes which have worked. Um, and I'm in the best headspace that I've ever been. And I think why I'm here today is when you're in a good headspace, it's important to talk to people as well because people always talk when they're in a bad headspace, but when you're in a good space is when you can help people the most. So I made a lot of mistakes, man. Uh, uh, made a lot of success as well. I've had a, a glowing corporate career and done a lot of great work in the community, but never really dialed in on that health and happiness. So I want to I want to share how I got to where I'm at now and, and where I'm going and hopefully help others along their journey. Um, I love the work that you do and just want to be a part of it. So well, it's it's good to have you on and the last couple of podcasts I've just recorded and, and people will listen to now is I've spoken about the COVID journey and how they've experienced COVID. But I think for you, we won't start there because I think that's where a big shift has happened. So we'll kind of build up to that a little bit. Um, you uh, off air, we spoke about um, you know quite a little bit, a lot, a lot of trauma that you've experienced throughout your lifetime, and um, you know for personal reasons and, and family reasons, we're not going to go into that today. And I think it's really important to put that out to listeners that um, you know not all trauma needs to be discussed in a in a big view, but it obviously needs to be spoken about with the right people, the counsellors and psychologists that you've got in your corner. But what we want to t- want to touch on is, you know, not what that trauma did to you, but like, how did that? How did those traumas start to change your life? Um, around, I think it was fourteen years old. You sort of mentioned before. Yeah. So part of my recovery over the last couple of months has been intense counselling and psychological therapy, cognitive behaviour training, talk therapy, um, and also identifying my schemas. Um, A lot of my trauma was in my early childhood years um, and your adolescence, which is really important to your development. Um, And so you develop a number of schemas and everyone has schemas. They're good and bad and they're just subconscious traits which you can't control unless you go through cognitive behaviour training to figure out the triggers for them. Um, and so my early trauma in my life really developed a number of schemas which, you know, manifested in things like self-sacrifice where I always put others first and couldn't take care of myself, um, validation and uh, approval seeking, so always chasing hundreds of friends and trophies. Um, a few other ones like emotional deprivation, which has really meant that I've lived not the full quality of life I should for the last 18 years because 
I've struggled to open up to people, men and women, anyone. And whenever anyone gets close to me, I get angry. Uh, yep. <laughs> um, yeah, so I've really, all my trauma, which I couldn't agree more with what you said, no need to share it. Um, it's my story and I share it with my professionals and they help me Im- immensely with that. Um, but it's just really impacted how I've been able to move forward with my life and be the best version of myself. So, yeah, therapy is helping immensely with overcoming some of those challenges. And I think I'll, I will say to the listeners now, yeah, like trauma, and you, Craig would attest this as well, and going through my experiences, and um, trauma isn't the same for everyone. Trauma can be, you know, we always put this, we put, I'm putting my hands up, they're not even watching this, but. <laughs> trauma, everyone seems to put trauma on this spectrum of, you know, we've got this up here and this down below. But as a three-year-old, trauma is trauma. It is no worse than the other. It, it develops internally in your subconscious beliefs the same way. You know, you think about a three-year-old who is lost in a shopping centre, they think they've lost their parents forever. So they have this as they grow up, they have this fear that they're, that people are going to leave their life. So they cling to them, they become needy. So all of these traumas and um, um, I guess the point of that is is don't devalidate your own trauma just because it might not seem as a crazy experience as someone else. Um, you know, like I'm still re- I'm still discovering traumas I had as a kid um, that I thought was something, but there actually was something else. So please don't val- devalidate your own experiences you know, while listening to other people's stories because we all have, you know, these subconscious beliefs that come from trauma. So can I give you a I think you can agree with that. Yeah, I love funny examples. I think it's brilliant. Yeah, so, like, you know, we could talk about the really big trauma or one of the funniest ones for me as a kid was I love AFL and love playing footy, but when I was eight years old I was playing junior football and another kid punched me in the nose and I got a blood nose and I didn't play footy for the next five years. (laughs) (laughs) yeah and and that can that can attest that can come out in other ways as we get older as well like that fear of confrontation on a field that fear to i don't know what happened in an eight-year-old but if that same circumstances come up you instantly go into that protection mode it's just it's just normal Um, that's that's i I do love looking back on some of my traumas and yeah you do you look back and you go it's so irrational or immature that belief like where that's come from so it's good to just sit back and laugh at it and go well i'm, I'm holding on to this belief because of a three-year-old version of me like i'm actually acting like a three-year-old um so what so in your teenage years what what were the dramatic shifts in your behavior um that you you can look back and notice or, or whether you looked back at the time and you knew at the time what was going yeah. on during my teenage years, I didn't really identify that I was struggling because you're not really fully emotionally and developed and you're not as mature. Your brain's not fully there yet. But reflecting back now, I was relatively normal until the age of 13 or 14. And here's another quick funny one. Um, when I first encountered a professional, uh, a mental health professional, his name was Dr. Power and he had a moustache and he was scary um, and it scared me. <laughs> is that is that Arndale Shopping Centre? Uh, he might have been. I went to Blackburn Clinic. Yeah. He was at Blackburn Clinic at the time. He might have been there. Yeah. He was my family doctor, a lovely man. But it, he, was uh, mine, he was mine as well. Yeah, he was a lovely man. But as a teenager who was afraid of sharing stuff, I was scared. <laughs> um, yeah, but yeah. that point in my life when I was sort of seeking that was where things sort of changed. And I was quite academic and sporty and stuff before then, but I really got into self-destructive behaviour in terms of associating with less than desirable people, participating in, you know, what you describe as just – what most people describe as kids playing up and, you know, teenagers will be teenagers. But in reality, it's just a a show of, you know, pain and frustration and and anger and stuff. And so between 14 to 16, I really got myself into a lot of trouble. Um, I was suspended in year eight from school. I think it was twice and I got 140 detentions. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Good times. Um, Then year nine, uh, 15, you know, I just got into mischief and, you know, I was 15 years old and I was going around drinking and partying and smoking and I took up smoking at that age and, 
yeah, those two to three years between 14 to 16 were really challenging until I sort of found some better support networks and some of my mate, some of our mutual friends that we know together um, as we sort of entered the latter years of our education where I disconnected from some of those troubling um, outlets and then connected with sport, playing football, cricket, um, getting outdoors, skateboarding. Um, but really that then shifted from, you know, playing up into always having to be doing something. And I remember in my VCE years, man, I was working 25 hours a week, playing football, had a girlfriend, partying with my mates, sleeping four or five hours a night and, you know, got terrible results in my high school education because I was just living life in a million miles an hour to distract myself. Yeah, so you're there. It's classical avoidance type behaviour of, 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 I guess, at that period, you can't. Under, it's very hard to understand what you're going through, but it's avoiding any potential um, feelings or emotions that you have no idea about. For sure, man. That was um, exactly what it was. And you, because you, you touched on, um, you're very, you're you're quite intellectual. You, you're quite intellectual person. Um, very good at maths. You know, to actually, basically not do well at school how did that sit with you and all of that considering um I wasn't focused on the on it at the time because I was lost like one of the things that I've benefited from so much the last 10 years is having really strong mentors um and in my early years I had a great stable family environment um lots of great friends but really struggled to find someone to guide me and so at the time I wasn't really upset but Reflection has shown me that things that I love doing, I did really well at. So nearly I failed five out of – you could fail six subjects in your VCA, I think it was. I failed five and was told I was going to get kicked out of school going into year 12 um, despite being really intelligent and then, you know, had to knuckle down. And in year 12, I got top of our information processing and management, like computers class, because I loved it. I bet everything else I was struggling with. Um, so at the time, I didn't recognize it. Um, but – that's because, again, like I was too busy distracting myself to focus on what was right for me and building a good future being right for me, um, you know, just avoiding all those difficult things. So it's pretty hard to, yeah, put something at the time. Afterwards I've gone, yeah, that was silly. Um, I should have, I could have done, yeah. not sure, I could have done much better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, that's, that's, uh, that's, I love that change of word there. But it's, and that's hindsight, so obviously a wonderful thing, but hopefully this, the listeners that might go be going through this might go, oh, that's me at the moment, and go All right. So, and as we'll touch on in the future, in the future minutes, um, we'll touch on how you sort of are managing and working through all that stuff. But I think it's really important because there's people out there probably going through high school, but there's people probably in their thirties, forties, fifties who are going with that exact same thing. It's people looking go, it's kids being kids, but we actually do it in our thirties and forties as well. Like we just we avoid everything by just throwing ourselves into it. And I think uh, personally one of the reasons why people are struggling so much with COVID is because they can't throw themselves into everything and avoid it anymore, um, especially males. We are prone to 70, 80-hour work weeks because we've got to put a roof over the head. I'm just in quotation marks. No one can see that either. <laughs> when, um, so, I mean, it's, it's a really powerful message for all age groups, not just not just everyone. And it's so good that you're learning it now in your early 30s rather than your 70s. Not to say in your 70s, not still important. Oh, I, I love that, man. Like I am a classic avoider and your definition of men and how we struggle with that and, you know, my avoidance is manifested in working 70, 80, 90-hour weeks, distracting myself, getting angry at people, you know, so many negative behaviours that, only I can control and now I'm learning how to control them and it's the best I've felt in years. So, yeah, it's, it's such a good point that you raise. So before before we touch on the anger, I mean, what was the, your 20s like? Let's, let's sort of feed a little bit through more, more through the 20s and what yeah. that looked like for you um, yeah. and then we'll touch on anger and how you deal with stuff, manage stuff and go from there. Yeah, I probably won't touch too much on the big episodes of trauma that happened to me. I'll, I'll touch slightly on them. So 
probably post school, I really struggled with that adjustment into what you'd call traditional adulthood. Was really lost the year after school, and that manifested into lots of binge drinking, lots of experimentation with recreational drugs. Um, not on extreme levels, but just socially, like maybe once every once every second or third month, I'd you know have some marijuana with some friends and. You know, experimented once on really hard drugs, which had pretty bad consequences for me um, and lost some good friendships over that and, you know, nearly, you know, nearly felt pretty bad consequences myself. Um, yeah. And then that was a real circuit breaker for me uh, for a few years. Um, it forced me to take some time back, reflect on who I was and the journey that I was going on. And from there, I enrolled into TAFE, which then turned into university which was when I really discovered my academic pursuits. And there was a class that I was doing at uni, which everyone was failing. It was called Statistics and Research Methods. Um, and I was sitting on 100 out of 100 before the exam. Uh, yeah. But then my anxiety kicked in the night before and I finished <laughs> up on 97 out of 100 for the, for the class. And I remember getting my results back. And like one of my other schemas I've got is unrelenting standards. I'm a bit of a perfectionist. Yeah. Um, and I remember getting the results back and absolutely kicking myself that I didn't get 100 out of 100 while nearly everyone else was failing. <laughs> failing, yeah, yeah. So, um, so and I, I guess it's that if we go back to it's an immature and irrational belief that we have that we must be perfect. 100%, man, 100%. And, you know, that change from school into university or the workforce was really hard for me very very hard and I didn't have a lot of people guiding me and I wasn't guiding myself and investing into myself and so that caused me to make a lot of mistakes and then from there what happened was I finished uni and I hadn't prepared for the workforce enough I hadn't done sort of any placements or any real understanding of the work that I wanted to go into and I landed a, a great job but it didn't sit well with me and I really 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 struggled with the adjustment from studying partying girlfriends, you know, all that sort of fun stuff you do at uni to just work in the nine to five or in my case, the or most men's case, work in the eight till six, eight till seven. Yeah. <laughs> my first grad job, dude, I, I was in a prestigious boutique marketing agency working with big clients, um, was getting set to do a two-month around Australia tour with the Krusty Demons, um, paid for. Um, most guys would dream for that. Um, but the adjustment just – it killed me physically and mentally. And so at that point, landing my first job, dream job, out of uni, I quit it. Um, and I tried to focus on my health and happiness. And then that led to probably one of the hardest periods of my life where, you know, you, you're not quite fully maturely developed still and you questioned every decision I made. I've ruined my career. I've ruined my life. I've ruined my relationships. And so 20, at 22 years of age, 23, um, I'd already been through two massive overhauls in my life through not taking care of myself and not being able to open up. Um, yeah. All of them were completely avoidable, all of them. Um, yeah. And, you know, that's something that I know now and I hope that other people can learn from. Um, I'll quickly wrap up the next part of my 20s um, and you can ask some questions about it. But from there, I really rebuilt myself and went back to sort of a, a full-time retail job, which I did during uni. My comfort zone, um, did that really well. Um, you know, rebuilt my health and happiness over 15 months, love working with people. And then I got some confidence back and entered the corporate world um, and entered into sales roles through a graduate position with a great employer. Um, I ended up moving all around Australia in my 20s. So I moved to the Sunshine Coast in Queensland with them as a sales rep on the road. Best place I've ever lived in was so good for my happiness, like warm temperature, sunshine, coastal lifestyle, um, was driving as a salesman on the road, downtime to yourself. It was one of the best jobs I've ever done. Uh, then I moved back to Melbourne, cold weather, office environment. Didn't agree with me. Didn't <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. agree with me. Um, well, it didn't agree with me because I didn't know how to manage it. Like it's easy to say yeah. weather in Melbourne. It was me. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then I moved to Sydney with my previous employer again. Again, was doing really well at work, getting promoted every sort of 18 months and, again, lived near the beach, brilliant for my health, and got back into footy up there. 
Um, so when I was living in Sydney, I was living 800 metres from a surf beach, getting the train into work, not driving, playing footy, cardio, exercise, all of those typical things that every health professional tells you to do. So my 20s had started off really rocky, but the latter half of them was great because I, I found some tools and things to balance myself out, like sunshine sport, cardio, um, but I still had big problems in terms of that self-destructive behaviour masking stuff. Like I was a binge drinker, um, you know, had some gambling problems for a little while in my mid to late 20s, um, just stuff that was a man screaming for help who didn't know how to yeah. help. Yeah, who who hasn't been taught or shown how to ask for help. Yeah, exactly. Basically. Yeah. And, that, and that's what we, as males, we put on this, oh, I should have asked for help. Well, if you've got no tools to actually know how to ask for help, then how can you ask for help? Uh, if you've never been taught or never been shown, how can you ask for help? You know, as kids we cry, but, you know, as adults we can't walk around the streets crying because we need help. Like that's just a little bit too difficult for everyone to understand. But um, there is ways. <laughs> yeah. Um, so going back into your early 20s when you're sort of going through this, I guess, this version, this change of you, what, I mean, hindsight's wonderful and hindsight's what, what would you, to that person that's screaming out but not knowing they're screaming out for help but they're showing all these things that you did, what's the, you know, the way you could look back and say to this person, you know, to younger Craig, if you just do this, I think this might be able to help you. you know. Yeah, it, it sounds, this sounds so basic that, one of the things that so many of my male friends just don't do is see a GP. Like I had this toxic attitude towards health professionals when I was younger because you think you're invincible and you don't educate yourself enough on the signs of stress, mental health conditions and all of that sort of stuff. And there were so many telltale signs for me just to get checked out and commit to it and prioritize that over everything else which society places pressure on you to do. One of the hardest parts for kids from 15 to 24, I say kids, they're not kids, they're adults, um, young adults. One of the hardest parts for young adults is absorbing all the pressure everyone puts on you to build a career, find a partner, be good at sport, be a good human, be a great friend and not show too many emotions because all of that's mm. Every single person who has been through that adolescent to young adult journey has struggled. And it's through pressure they put on themselves and pressure society puts on them. And I think the one sentence I would say back to myself who's younger is relax, be kind to yourself, slow down, and just spend some time thinking about what really makes you happy and don't be afraid to see GPs or mental health professionals. Yeah. Really powerful. I think we'll probably touch a lot more on actually feeding the soul rather than feeding the ego. Um, because I, you were good at your corporate job. That's it's very safe to say. Um, but it would you say it fed your ego? It didn't feed your soul, mate. It that I could not relate more to a sentence. So I won the highest award. For a, uh, I'm not going to go into commercially sensitive information, but a very large business and a very large brand, the highest sales award in Australia and New Zealand. Um, and the next day I just felt terrible because I finally had that realisation in my life that that was all about that validation schema. And I was yeah. feeding my soul, I was feeding my ego, and I had to be the best high-flying corporate guy who provides for his family, who is the breadwinner and yeah, did not feed my soul at all, except for, except for the people that I worked with were brilliant. Um, I worked yeah. with some of the most kind, genuine, caring people, and I used to get so much satisfaction out of coaching and mentoring and guiding the next generation coming through, but also learning from more experienced, mature business professionals, not only about work, but about my personal life and relationships and happiness and the connection in people in corporate can be incredibly enjoy. It was incredibly enjoyable for me. Um, 
but the actual work that I was doing, yeah, was to feed my ego as opposed to my soul, definitely. Yeah, and we touched on this before we um, recorded, you know, everyone – Everyone has a different purpose and it's okay to have a purpose in a corporate world. This is, we're not saying, we're not bag, we're not here to bag corporates out or bag out anyone else. Like we, we're fully understanding that everyone has a different role and the purpose and the, the soul is fed by different things for different people. Um, and I guess I think if it's, if it's all right with you, we sort of go, what, because you're out of the corporate world now. Yep. We, it's, it's safe to say we caught up. I think we can we can go to this part of the podcast where I can sort of say what happened, what changed, um, yeah. what made you decide that it was the right time for you to change. Yeah, it's a um, great question. I think I'll just put one caveat back on the prior statement. Like, I couldn't agree more with find your purpose and some of the people in the corporate world that I've worked with are some of the kindest, genuine, most caring people ever who genuinely love what they do and I'm so happy for them. Um, not necessarily for me. And I think when we caught up, I'd been through a really challenging period over COVID and I think a lot of people can relate to this. In their working lives, it was either feast or famine. Um, you know, you were either completely out of work or you had way too much work. Um, but then you had this extra dynamic thrown in where in my industry you were working from home and you were in a little bit of a bubble and I had that bubble ended up being the worst thing that ever happened to my health short term but the best thing that ever happened to my health long term because what the bubble did was it forced me to focus a lot more on my work uh, and not the connections with people that I would have in the office Um, because I would always distract myself with connecting with brilliant people that I worked with Um, and it would make me really enjoy my work and then working from home with COVID and the the stresses and pressures which most people in corporate have felt over COVID you know budget cuts sales pressures too much stock not enough stock you know so many different pressures and I really feel for everyone in the workforce at the moment it really caused me to stop uh, and COVID really helped me stop reflect and look at my health well-being and happiness and there was a point in time, maybe two weeks before we caught up, where I looked in the mirror and I hadn't slept for three days straight, not because of work or anything like that, but because I was just managing COVID and my energy levels and anxiety and, and stress from COVID by just smashing caffeine and cigarettes and self-destructive behavior. And my sleep, diet, caffeine, everything was out to lunch and you know, I think I had a, a yeah three sleepless nights in a row and I just went, I can't keep living like this. I can't keep doing this to myself. What is driving this? And then from there, I um, spent a bit of time reflecting and I remembered, you know, successful corporate career, won five awards, highest award you could get. The moment where I really started on a downhill trajectory was definitely after I won the, the big award this year. Um, and then nobody nobody that I worked with really saw it, but we had a ceremony. Um, I did a speech in front of 120 people virtually, you know, eloquent speech, thanking everyone except for myself, never acknowledged my efforts that I put into yep. it. <laughs> Plus, depression yes, yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty typical, yeah. Yep. Um, man, man with depression can't see his own good traits. Um, <laughs> yep. um, and then straight afterwards, after I got off the ceremony, I just broke down with my partner and was in tears on the ground, couldn't control them. And then that manifested back into the old Craig who then got on the video Zoom calls and got drunk that night and absolutely polaxed myself. And then the next day I was in a horrible headspace and that carried on for another two months until I finally stopped after three sleepless nights and went, what's driving this? Like, what is driving this? And then that caused me to do many things like reach out to people in the mental health not-for-profit space, reach out to yourself, just start asking lots of questions from, you know, kind people like you who've put yourself out there and have shown guys like me, hey, there's people you can talk to. Yeah. How how powerful was that being able to reach out, not just to me, but to, to others as well and I guess feed the soul? It was particularly people that weren't connected to my professional journey. Um, people that were connected to my professional journey, rightfully so, 
whether they'll admit it or not, had a vested interest because I was very good at my job and, you know, had a bright future in front of me there. Um, people who weren't connected to my professional journey really fed the soul because their feedback was all the same. It was exactly yeah. what we spoke about and it was just take like, care of yourself and focus on your health and happiness. And yeah, to hear those words that everyone who's worked in mental health has a great way of delivering them. They say it with kindness as opposed to directness and they allow you to come to the realisation and, you know, different people just gave me a little bit and then eventually I got the courage to make the tough call. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you did. You made you made the tough and we spoke about this off air. It was one of those things where you you already made the decision in your head. There was just there and this comes back to that validation again. You, you wanted that validation to to actually take that step. But it's but with this case it's stepping and falling into a net. It's not falling into just the unknown you were falling into a net there was going to be people around you to catch you and I think that's where it probably was coming from more it was like I'm about to make this really what some some would say ridiculous call um because you're giving up a lot of money and a career and walking into the unknown but you had a safety net you had people around you that were going to pick you back up and say no you've got this and we've got this with you was would you say that was the most important thing knowing that you had that couldn't agree more and i'm very fortunate um you know i think a big part of where we grew up Murubak, um it's meant that you know it's a humble suburb with some some of the best people i've ever met and you know through sport and all the work that you've done in sport and i've done in sport through my corporate job through my you know other community work i've got a really broad support network um but more importantly i Leading up to some of these decisions, I really tightened my support network and found five or six close friends, family members that I could lean on that knew all about my trauma, my health background, everything. They knew everything. Um, and, yeah. you know, it's cliche, but almost like accountability buddies. And, you know, I didn't rely on just one. I used all of them at different times to reduce the emotional burden on them, but because the stress of the change that I went through set me off on one of the worst health episodes I've had in my life. But because I put that structure in place of that support, and that net, as you describe it, we got through it and we got through it and it's been the best thing I've ever done. But during it, it was the scariest time of my life. Um, <laughs> just because of the unknown and, you know, needing a little bit of support from professionals and yeah, but exactly how you describe it, that net, provided everything I ever needed but, and it was brilliant. You um, you mentioned the word burden and share the emotional burden and I know that's that's one of the number one fears for, for anyone that's seeking help. It's they don't want to put that burden on anyone. What I mean, what's your take on that? Because, and I'll, I'll, I'll share mine, but yeah. I think it's much more of a burden if you go 20 years as an alcoholic and you avoid all your troubles and you work 80 hours a week and you never see your wife or your kids. That, that to me is a much more of a burden um, than just sharing a little bit of your emotional baggage as a team to work through. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think the reason why I use burden, I'm still on my journey, right? Like you're always on a journey of growth and discovery and, Part of the reason why I use the word burden is because I've really, really struggled over the years to communicate effectively. Um, and so I have placed a bit of stress and anxiety on people who do care for me, you know, because I might get really sad and I, you know, might have a big fit of tears when I'm sharing some deep and some deep, deep experiences I've had. Um, or, you know, I might get really angry because it's really hard for me to talk about stuff and, indirectly I hurt, I've hurt my friends and family's feelings through these approaches and now I know how to communicate them better. I couldn't agree more. Nothing is a burden and for me I will let any of my friends yell at me, scream, do whatever they need to just to know that they've got someone there, there for them. I never want to be viewed as a burden. Um, yeah. I had that for too long, man. Like it was from 14 to 30, 33, 19 years. I thought doing it would be a burden to someone and it was. Yeah. Um, for me because I didn't know how to do it properly. No one was showing me yeah. how to do it properly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so before we touch on, you know, the last couple of months of your life and how you've you, – there's been a big shift, a, hu a huge shift um, 
which I'm grateful as a, uh, grateful as a person because I love seeing the development. Um, we want we want to talk about anger, and you brought up anger. Then there's a huge stigma around agma, uh, a stigma around anger, a stigma around anger. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw you the floor because I think this is this is something that you're quite passionate about, speaking about anger and the relationship with anger that we have with ourselves, but also others. Yeah. Um, I think anger is generally a mask for people. I know it's a bit of a sweeping statement, but both men and women most of the time are using anger to mask other emotions, trauma, pain, all sorts of things. Some of the most angry people I know have got a very challenging background or story and they really struggle to release it. Now, for myself, I've been not... I'm one of the most emotional guys you'll meet. I, you know, everyone calls me the, the drunk DM king because I have a six pack of beer and then <laughs> next thing we're all hugging and crying. And, um, so my, my spectrum of emotions is, is wide, but I have traditionally been known as a bit of a hothead at times. And you know, that is challenging to hear um, when most of my anger has been the typical response to stress, fight or flight. Um, and I don't fight with my fists. I never have been. Part of my trauma is I've been victims of many physical assaults, um, and so I'm a big anti-violence campaigner, um, but I generally stress manifests for me in using the fight, um, the fight or flight response in fighting with words, um, and, you know, as part of my job in my corporate career, I was a highly trained negotiator, salesman, and communicator, um, and so I'm very good at fighting with words, um, but... <laughs> too heavy-handed with them at times and, you know, all I needed was someone like myself or yourself to be educated and just take a step back and go, Craig, why are you so angry? Like, it doesn't make any sense. You yourself today, you don't seem right. And then that would have shifted my psyche. In all those periods over the last 18 years when I've been angry, if someone just said to me, you don't seem yourself today, is everything okay? Instead of responding in a different emotional manner, man, that, that gets cut through with me every time, every time someone says that. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, very, it's very powerful. Um, and we're not saying anger doesn't have its place. Um, there's, there's, there's a whole a range of anger and it's, I guess it's unnecessary anger which, which causes a big ripple effect which we can – we can look at, and I always think when someone's angry now, where is that coming from? Yeah. Not how do I fight, fight back? Where is it coming from? Where, what, where is their pain point? Why, why are they hurting? Why is this affecting them? When you start asking these questions, you start going into compassion and empathy and you actually become better at handling the other person. Yeah. And it's handling is probably not the right word. It's, it's meeting them with the expectation. It's helping them. And I remember being in hospital and um, someone's stuff was getting stolen out of the fridge daily. All their food was getting stolen. And that, that you have a right to be angry if your stuff's being stolen. Like there's no – and he was, he was – I could see he was building up this anger and then blaming himself for being angry. And I just went up and I just put my hand on him. I said, you're allowed to actually be angry. Like there's nothing wrong with me. And he just – the relief. But we see anger as this thing where it's like stop being angry, stop being upset. Um, and to write from a kid, like if a kid throws a tantrum, stop doing that. So you, we are told to stop being angry. Whereas I think it's look at the action and then understand where it's coming from and then look at a resolution. So we're not saying it's okay for someone to punch someone else verbally or physically, but ask the question why. Why are they doing that? You know, there was a... There's an all-in brawl at our career club, footy club, uh, I won't say what year, but um, recently, where there's about 100 kids, 18, 19, just punching on. And there was one kid who was basically feeding it all and continuing it. So after it all stopped, he'd then start again. And we found out later down the track that he'd grown up around someone else who they fought with their fists quite often. And... The questions were asked. Yeah, there was a lot of judgment and I was like sitting there like, why is this kid at 17, 18 just punching people? You know, that 
at the core of every run, that's we don't we go into our soul, we don't walk around wanting to punch and physically harm people. So it's coming from a place of fear of fight that, that fight or flight. And it got to the point um, I, I found out that he'd had a lot of trauma growing up. And it's not an excuse. It's a, okay, this kid needs help not to be ridiculed and hung up. And, you know, when we start placing these expectations, oh, this kid's just going to start a fight next party. Well, why is he going to start a fight? He's not doing it because he's enjoying the attention for starting fights. No one does. Um, I, I, I really... I struggle to find someone that does. So I've baffled on a little bit about this, but I'm really passionate about that side of anger because it's seen such a bad thing. Yeah, it's a, it's a good segue though, man, Like, because the other one which I didn't really talk about before, which is so common in, in blokes, particularly in their 20s and teenage years, is being the class clown um, and using yeah. the mask. Like for so many years I was always making jokes and banter and, you know, even the Dr. Power and they're getting punched in the face as an eight-year-old kid before. <laughs> like I, I, Yeah, yeah. I love laughter, but a lot of the times some of the most happy, I, I, you just did the quotation marks, some of the happiest, yeah. most outgoing guys are actually using that as a mask. And when you see guys at parties and they're always the life of the party and they're always laughing and always seem to be super happy, sometimes you need to take a step back and also go, is, is that normal behaviour? Because that's another mask for men that we use all the time. Yeah, and it's it's now people are like, oh no, we can't laugh. We're not we're not saying that at all. There's a balance between all, all there's a balance between all this. Like laughter is, and we both love laughter. There's just a place and a time, and, a, and it's looking at where is this person? Are they coming from a, a comic side of it, or are they coming from a let's drag the attention away from my pain side of it? And it's. It's a hard balance and it's a balance that not in our lifetime we'll be able to master, unfortunately. But um, it's definitely like I, I remember getting drunk and doing those silly little things to make people laugh because it took the attention away from what potentially could have been underlying those those issues. It's just a, And it's another avoidance tactic. Yeah. The best example yeah, I got for myself is like this conversation we're having now, a few jokes, a few laughters, Perfect. I love laughter. Comedy's great. But in the lead up to sort of quitting my job, it was getting a bit extreme and I had a rational phobia my whole life of bananas. Silliest thing ever, man. Yeah, yeah. Um, I can't eat bananas. I've never eaten a banana and I was raising money for charity and I'm like, I'm just going to start eating all bananas and doing all these banana-related dares because I'm going to overcome my lifelong phobia and everyone can have a laugh at me when that was, you know, out there self-destructive behaviour masked under the guise of comedy. <laughs> it was really yeah. fun. I, I still laugh at it. It, it. it was, yeah. Oh, no, it was brilliant. It was, it was Facebook gold. It was brilliant. Um, <laughs> and, and that's a good uh, segue to you You went through that period of time where you started raising a ton, ton of money for Beards of Hope. Yep. Is that for Beards of Hope or was that for something? It was for, that was for Beards of Hope. So... I guess before we go into this, what is Beards of Hope? Let's give them a shout out. Let's uh, and and how you got involved with them a couple of years ago as well. Yeah, sure. Um, Beards of Hope is an event that runs from June till the end of August, where on average ninety Australian blokes uh, grow a beard. Uh, can just be a goatee, a mustache, whatever you like. Um, and basically, at the end of it, they brave the shave to raise funds and awareness for an organisation called. Bears of Hope Pregnancy and Infant Loss Support. Pregnancy and infant loss impacts one in four Australian women in their lifetime, um, and it really is an unspoken about topic for both men and women. Um, it's, it's horrible, and through my work with these guys over the last four years, I've had so many people confide in me in such a, on such a sensitive topic, and it's been really beautiful and, and some of the most magic moments of my life. How I got into a pregnancy and infant loss charity, for them, and now I'm doing some pro bono sponsorship work for them. It's quite weird and wonderful. <laughs> um, I think the listeners might enjoy this story. So I played footy up in Sydney and my footy club lost the grand final in, I think it was 2013, um, and they decided that they lost it because they weren't tough enough. <laughs> um, and so yeah. had about... 
15 schooners of Tui's New or whatever they drink in Sydney um, at the pub and then decided that we're going to grow beards to be tougher on the field. And the next day they woke up with some of the worst hangovers they've ever had and said, all right, if we're going to do this, we may as well do it for a good cause. And one of the major sponsors, a beautiful man, Adrian Raftery, who's raised hundreds of thousands of dollars for this charity, um, is a published author, great guy. Um, he was one of the club sponsors and he was working with Bears of Hope um, and he won't mind me sharing his story. It's all over the website because he lost his daughter and really struggled as a man to be able to share his grief because losing a child generally most, and rightfully so, I just need to um, put this at the start of this topic, rightfully so, most of the emotional support is given to women in that circumstance because it's a different journey for women and, it, and it's just truly horribly hard for them. But Adrian, they had plenty of support for women lined up and then Adrian with the guys, they went, bears of hope, beards of hope. Um, <laughs> you know, again, Schooners of Tui's New does wonderful things to the brain. <laughs> the the Norwest Jets up in Sydney Brewing Footy Club, um, country lads, they started this Beards of Hope event with Bears of Hope and Adrian. And since then, um, Beards of Hope has become one of Bears of Hope primary income streams. And I think all up it's close to half a million dollars that has been raised since 2014 to support families, men and women, through pregnancy and infant loss. Um, and, yeah, this year we're on track. I think I can't exactly remember how many men are doing it, but we're at $93,500 um, with just under two weeks to go. So huge effort this year in the middle of COVID. Um, we're going to beat last year's fundraising. So the guys are doing an amazing job. That's uh, it's fantastic. And, um, yeah, like as you, as you touched on, the, the support that's needed for for both both parts of the pregnancy is, is so important because you know and you you talk about you know marriage loss and failed marriages and, and that can break marriages apart and I have no doubt that it's because one person might be moving faster than the other person in their emotional recovery and um, if we can have something where both both partners are on the same I guess train, um, going at the sort of same speed, then people can work through that. And, um, you know, it, it's not something that will ever go away for those people in their minds, but it's definitely important that they can look after themselves. Um, yeah. That. Bears of Hope and Beards of Hope never really focus on it going away. They focus on celebrating the life of the loved one lost. And, you know, yeah. a bit of what I was talking about was about men, but, so much of the work they do is, is getting women to open up as well because so many women compartmentalise such a challenging experience for them physically, especially physically, emotionally yeah. and mentally. And there's just so much white space with the, the, the transition from potential fatherhood and motherhood into not having it and then the impacts that have on your relationship, your life, your happiness and Beautiful organisation. Um, got into it through football clubs. Um, yeah. Yeah, love it. And they do so much great work. So, I mean, quick, cor- quick corporate life. Um, what else have you been doing with your time? So this is probably pretty fascinating. I've, um, I've had a really interesting last two months. So since I quit corporate for a career break um, where I was really going to stress test where I wanted to go next. Did I want to stay in corporate? Did I want to move into, you know, community work? Did I want to work for myself? I have just been immersing myself in a pretty full-on health journey, um, but also a journey of trying things to see what I want to do. So my number one priority once I left corporate was to get my brain right. Um, I was very exhausted fatigued, um, not because of corporate, because of COVID and me mistreating myself. Um, so I focused on sleep. What, what's that saying? Eat, sleep, exercise, repeat. Um, I did that. Yeah, something like that. Um, and then really from there, focused on seeking professional help um, from brain trainers, um, you know, psychologists. Um, your brain is like biceps and quads. The more you train it, the stronger it becomes. Um so I buried myself into therapy and committed to that for the first time in my life. 
and it's been unreal. I look genuinely look forward to every session. I've got one tomorrow, um, and yeah, smiling thinking about it. Um, so yeah. that was my focus first and foremost. But then I quickly pivoted into reflection as part of my therapy. Where do I want to go to next? What's my passion? Looking back, and I, I realized very quickly it was people. Um, it's always been people, but it's always been people's health and happiness. And part of my self-sacrifice schema, I've always put others first. But I do that because I enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. I yeah. genuinely smile when I see other people smiling. <clears throat> and so I started doing lots of weird and wonderful things for myself, but also for others. And so I bought a panel van. Uh, it was terrible. Three and a half grand it cost me. Sold my Corolla for 12 grand. Went and worked at a panel shop, uh, auto shop for a month to see if I was good with my hands. Um, so it cost me nothing. 12 grand all up, but restored a panel van in a month. Uh, the Pox van, um, if anyone wants to see any photos, reach out. Um, <laughs> or you'll see Pox van plates driving around the eastern suburbs. <laughs> um, and before, then, we, before, we go, before we go on, like how important that was that for you to get in and do something with your hands, something different, something that you hadn't done before. You know, we, we spoke about art therapy and you might touch on this in a second, but this for you was a, a form of physical therapy. Yeah, I have always been against that creative art side of my brain but it's actually a really strong part of me and I got a lot of benefit out of health when I was at the height of my health episode um, I went and did a resin art session at health of mind art in Bayswater um, and that was unreal like my adrenaline was pumping because I was pretty unwell at the time that I was just finger painting basically and it just (laughs) fed my soul like you said and it just relaxed me and so what I found through the handyman work was, A, it really challenged my brain because I'd never done anything like it before, ever. But B, it was just really cathartic. It really soothed my soul and I could work on problem solving, singular-minded, relax and just slow down. But really one of the benefits I've seen through art therapy is the reward and satisfaction and endorphins that are released when you see the final project. Because you start yeah. with nothing and you finish with something and you know that you've done that. And yeah. that satisfaction is really powerful and it makes you really happy. <laughs> and uh, so what does the van do now? <laughs> the van is a tool to drive my freedom. Uh, people are going to think I'm crazy and it's awesome. I love it. I love traveling um, and COVID's changed the game. So I'm setting the van up so that I can sleep in the back, curtains, mattress, everything, getting a second battery installed so I can charge my laptop. Um, And I am working towards a remote career based in mental health not-for-profit through my work through Beards of Hope and a couple of other organisations where I can work from anywhere in Australia and, you know, get around, do speaking, whatever, um, and really help people transition or learn from my failings really let's call them that because I've, yeah. I've got a good story um but also at the moment um level four restrictions are really tough and i wanted to i wanted to launch my own business man i've always wanted to do it i think year 11 business management at Warwick college was when i was like, <laughs> <doing it." laughs> um, yeah. and so i always wanted to launch a consultancy um tried that and it's i've really had not much interest outside of helping my mates with their business, small businesses. And I don't want to charge them because they're my mates. Um, yeah. So I quickly pivoted when Dan Andrews announced level four restrictions and registered my business as a courier and transport business because right now in this six-week period, so many people are going through some hardship that they've never faced before. And people like myself who've felt a lot of hardship we've already got a lot of the coping tools to deal with it. Um, Whereas people where this is their first real period of isolation, loneliness and distance from their friends and family, they're really struggling. And so basically I'm doing deliveries around the Eastern suburbs in the Pox van, not really making a cent off it. I hired a truck on the weekend. My costs were 460 bucks. My sales were 550 and I spent a hundred <laughs> on Big M's pies and <laughs> and like other stuff. So I lost money on the weekend, but I delivered a Shark Tank for our mate Joel from Joel Iliades from school. 
um, and then yeah. furniture for a lady who was really struggling in lockdown and some chairs and some other things, a bassinet for a woman who was, you know, about to go into birth in next week or so. I mean, her sister wanted to help her out but couldn't get there. So now I'm just, you know, trying to help out where I can by making people's lives easier for the next four-week period. Quest to don't know whether this is in, come out as a question or as a comment, but there's a good quote: "You can't help someone if you're sitting in the gutter with them." So obviously, the corporate job at the moment, and you know, you're taking a break, but it's it's realistic that you're going to need, you know, money. And how does that look look for you right now? Because you're doing amazing work with Beards of Hope and another non-for-profit organisation called? Uh, Arthur? Arthur? Bartia. Um, haven't quite started starting that this next week coming up. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, what, because we won't go into too much detail about that, but what? what's your what's your passion? Why do you want to be involved in this? And and in what space do you want to be involved in this? Because you, you have, and which I think you said it off air, it's not about the money for you, but we do need to be realistic about it. You know, what do you see yourself doing in the next five, ten years? It's a really good question. And, again, not everyone's going to necessarily be able to relate to where I'm going, but everyone gets caught up in this bubble of pressure that society places on you around you've got to own a house, you've got to have a high-paying job, you've got to have a family, you've got to get married, you've got to do all these things. And it's just human nature because we just ask those questions of people as just general curiosity. You know, hey, Shane, how's your girlfriend? How's your work going? You know, you've got to buy a house. What are you like? You know, everyone always asks them instead of just, hey, Shane, are you happy today? Or um, yeah. <laughs> So, but I don't feel bad. I ask the same questions. I'm so guilty of it. Everyone is. So no one should ever yeah. feel bad about that. Um, yeah. It's genuine care. But for me, it's really all about, trying to find the balance of my career goals and my personal goals. And my personal goals are going to outweigh my career goals at all times, so long as I've got the money coming in to support them. Yeah. My personal goals are really, you know, I get a lot of benefit out of living in quieter places, um, so more regional areas, um, coastal areas. The ocean is therapy. Water is therapy for me. It makes me exercise. So, Five to ten years from now, ideally, I'm living somewhere regionally, maybe, you know, still have a solid connection back to Metro Melbourne through an investment property. And how I get there is by doing paid work in the mental health space, which allows me to, you know, take a huge pay cut from where I was, um, but work on my passion, which is sharing my story with people and helping them learn and not feel pressure. Um, but then on the side, run a side business and work on my investment portfolio and really manage my money very carefully to achieve my goals. And that may look like, you know, we could have a house, hypothetically, fake numbers here. We could own a house worth 700, but then we might buy a one bedroom studio in Footscray for 300 and a three bedroom house in regional Victoria for 400, rent the other one out and create this really balanced lifestyle where we can move between the two um and i yeah. chase career happiness health and have flexibility so i'm on a, a weird journey of finding what works best for me and my partner and you know all of that stuff but we're going to get there it's just going to take a lot of hard work and you've just got to be realistic with it all so that's a future goals are great um but having the bamboo versus oak tree type thinking i don't know if you've heard bamboo versus the oak tree the bamboo tree bamboo tree when the when the storms come will will go with the storm and it won't get uprooted whereas an oak tree if a storm comes through it'll just get torn out of the ground yeah so bamboo bamboo is you've got a goal but things in life might happen so it's not always going to come to fruition so it's not putting that expectation on yourself that it's going to be a certain way yeah which as you know um with the massive changes you've had this year, it doesn't always work out the way you want it to work out or the way you think it's going to work out. But what now and what are you currently doing to continue on your own mental health journey? I know you're seeing a psychologist and 
what are the what are the I guess the things you're doing that other people might be able to take note of and implement and try themselves because they won't necessarily work for them. I love that bamboo analogy. It's something I've struggled with my whole life. I've always been a goal-driven person who's been hungry and haven't lived in the present enough and just relaxed yep. and enjoyed it. Yeah, that's a, that's a great analogy and something that I'm still working on. And you can pick that up quickly, which is how you questioned. Question moves straight to that, and I love it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, what am I working on now? It's really been stripping it my life back to really it's what 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 is everything at the core and what feeds the soul, like you said. Um, the first and foremost thing that I do every day is make sure I focus on my sleep every day. Um, if I get a bad night's sleep, I don't beat myself up about it, but then I just figure out what should I have done differently that day. Mm-hmm. Did I have too much caffeine? Did I not go to bed early enough? Did I keep the phone on too long? Um, so I've really put some strong sleep techniques in place. So, yeah, no phone an hour before bed, no caffeine after lunch, white noise. I've got a pedestal fan or a heater to get the right temperature um, and really focusing on going to bed when my body tells me to go to bed. And some, some nights I'm falling asleep at 7, some nights I'm falling asleep at 11, but it works for me. Um, yeah, yeah. And then on the flip side, I'm just getting up when my body tells me to get up. Some mornings I'm getting up at 3, other mornings I'm getting up at 7, um, 8. But sleep has been my biggest thing. Um, diet, you know, not hard exercise, modest exercise, like going for walks. Um, yeah. Medication for me has been a big one, if I'm being really honest yeah. with everyone. Um, I've had a pretty bad attitude towards medication my whole life and clearly have some form of chemical imbalance, which I am working on it with a psychologist and a psychiatrist to get an official diagnosis for the first time in my life, which is pretty cool. Um, so I'm on medication at the moment, have been on it for five weeks. It's something that more people need to do more of and they need to talk to professionals wholeheartedly and openly. Um, the one thing that really helped me with that was working with my psychologist to do reflection on my whole life um, and mm. all the ups, downs, highs, lows, when they happened, what they did, and my GP and my psychologist have been able to work with me to get the right medication because um, I yeah. had tried the wrong stuff before and it's been pretty bad for me and left a bad taste in my mouth. So, yeah, medication is definitely the right medication and going through the process of finding the right one and sticking to it. Yeah. Um, and the right, the, right, the right doctor and psychologist as well is important. Yeah, that's yeah. a really good point. One thing for me, I've really struggled to talk to men not now, which is great. I'm getting through it as part of my therapy. So I, and I love dogs. So I found a, a psychologist that has, does animal therapy or dog therapy, female, yeah. softly spoken, did my research, um, looked for ages. I wanted telehealth before COVID restrictions. Yeah. So found the perfect one and we've just hit it off. And it, like I said, every session is fun and it's nothing we should be scared about because since I've done medication and found the right therapists, gone through the right process, started sleeping better, eating better, and being kinder to myself, I think, is the last bit I'll finish on. Um, just letting and can I, would, would I Would I be right in saying respecting your emotions and being true to you? Yeah, very much so. Like I'm a, my whole corporate career I did the, preach the concept to myself, an internal mantra of fake it until you make it. Um, and I made it like I hit the highest of high in, in my industry. Um, so I made it, but I was faking it and I was always happy. I was always social. I was the life of the party, always the last guy there drinking, partying, but never gave me fulfillment. Um, never did. The only time I got fulfillment was when I was helping coaching people, training people or learning myself. Um, so yeah, definitely that, that resonates really well with me. And so, and then the, they're the skills that you'll now you've acquired through the corporate world to use them in life to help others and to help non for profits and all of that. There's there's no job or part of our life we don't use going forward. And I think that's a really important takeaway for for your story and for others who might be in a similar boat. Don't resent what you've done. Understand that it was there for a purpose and you can use all of those skills to translate into the next facet. Yeah, 
the life you live. As I say, the one thing for me, it might sound with me that I, you know, I've got resentment. For, I don't. The the skills, like professional skills, I learn in corporate. Um, the people that I met, the interpersonal skills that I learned, and the personal growth that I had in ten years is all because of the great time I had working in corporate. Mm. And I've got so many awesome experiences about it. And if someone wants to work for 30, 40 years in corporate and it feeds their soul, do it. Like, yeah, if it makes you happy, do it. It didn't make me happy. Uh, I think I'm out of questions. Is there anything you want to add um, to, to any of what we've spoken about or anything else that you want to add? Um, by all means, just go for it. You've got a few minutes up your sleeve. Um, otherwise, we'll probably... I reckon we tee up another podcast in another six months to see what you're up to then. Yeah, no, nothing really. Like it, it is a little bit cliche in the mental health space, but it really isn't weak to speak. But just find the right people to speak to that you feel comfortable with. Don't feel like you're a burden. For me, um, you know, Shane was one of those people when I was really struggling and the connection that we had that day helped me make one of the most difficult decisions in my life. And it's been the best decision so far that I've ever made in my life, two years down the track. So, again, I'd love to catch up in six months and be able to reflect on how much better that's become even then because I'm mm. so looking forward to the next chapter of my life and what's coming but also enjoying the now, man, like just really having fun even though we're stuck in the house while I'm delivering stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, um, yeah, I guess I haven't asked too much about – your future and all of that because I can see and I can sense and I hope the listeners can sense that as well, you are living much more in the now, um, which is much more peaceful. Um, there's a lot more equanimity around it. If people want to look that word up, they can. I only learnt it a couple of months ago. Um, instead of worrying about the past and um, worrying, imagining about the future that you don't know what's going to happen and Hopefully, while COVID's on, this is what a lot of people can take out of it that we need to live in the now. And um, I want to thank you for joining me, Craig, and I want to thank you for also reaching out to me a couple of months ago. It takes huge courage to to reach out, to ask for help, to ask for guidance, to just get someone to listen. So well done on everything you've done in the last couple of months. Uh, it's been a long journey since I reckon in year seven, you would have been friends with Worm and I reckon Worm was bullying me in, when he was in year eight. So you would have been around the time when I was getting bullied by Worm. Um, that little, that. <laughs> um, yeah, so, um, so no, thank you. And if anyone of the listeners wants to reach out, I'll share any links associated with Bids for Hope, um, Craig's businesses, ventures or anything like that. We'll put all of that in the show notes so if anyone wants his help. Um, he's great at what he does um, and I'm sure he'd be willing to help out other people so thank you Craig thanks Shane really appreciate it thanks for listening to Power Strength and Vulnerability the Mental Health Podcast if anything in this podcast has brought up difficult feelings please call Lifeline on 13114. For any further information, or if you want to bring your story to life, contact Shane at Shane at vitalityfit.com.au. That's V I T A L I T Y F I T T.com.au.